Well, if you have your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to take it and turn with me once again to the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2. I want to return to our study of this Old Testament minor prophet, and you'll find the book of Habakkuk there in the Old Testament, the section of the Old Testament known as the minor prophets. The nation of Judah, in the time of Habakkuk, the nation of Judah was really on the brink of disaster. Uh, Spiritual apathy and idolatry had spread like a plague all throughout the land. From the temple to the palace, uh, corruption and compromise uh, were proudly on display. Violence and social decay were the norms of the day uh, during Habakkuk's time. And so there were gathering storm clouds that were looming on the national horizon, and no one seemed to be concerned about repentance. All was not well with the southern kingdom, and the prophet Habakkuk knew that something had to be done. And so as his book begins, uh, as chapter 1 begins, the prophet Habakkuk expresses his concern and voices his complaint to God. Uh, He had been greatly burdened by all that he had witnessed in Judah. And the Lord shows the prophet that he would most certainly deal with the sin of his people, but he tells Habakkuk that he really wouldn't like the way that he would go about it uh, because the Lord answers his prayer, but Habakkuk will not like the answer. And God tells Habakkuk, if you think you're uncomfortable now, you've really not seen anything yet. I'm about to do a work that you would not believe if I told you. And then God says that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians and they're going to sweep across the world and they're going to carry away the people of Judah into captivity. And so God's chastening of his people involved raising up a nation that had been even more wicked uh, than the people of Judah had been. And these Chaldeans are going to be an instrument of judgment in the hands of God. And so God says to the prophet, I'm raising them up. Uh, Things were bad, but they're about to get worse. And so Habakkuk then finds himself wrestling with God's sovereign purposes. And that's really what his name means. Uh, Habakkuk means uh, to wrestle. It means to embrace. And that's really what we find him doing in the three little chapters of this book that bears his name. Uh, We find him on his face wrestling with God in chapter 1. God reveals his plans to the prophet in chapter 2 and reminds him of his promise. And then in chapter 3, Habakkuk finally embraces God with surrendered faith and with humble worship. And really the key verse to understanding the message of Habakkuk is found in this second chapter in verse number four that says the righteous shall live by faith. And so really we find Habakkuk's faith being tested in chapter one. Uh, We find God teaching the prophet faith in chapter two. And then we see a picture of triumphant faith in the third chapter. And so really I wanna pick up here in chapter two uh, where we last left off Uh, as the prophet has said that he would take his stand at his watch post. So if you're there in Habakkuk chapter 2, find your place with me there in verse number 1. 
And notice that the word of God says this. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In other words, the prophet has voiced his complaint in chapter 1. Uh, and now he's saying, I'm just going to get still and I'm going to see what God might have to say to me by way of revelation. Uh, verse 2 says that the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. For it will surely come, it will not delay. Now verse 4 says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Uh, some translations say it this way, Behold the proud. Uh, his soul is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. So in verse 4, God is distinguishing between two different ways of living. Uh, there's the way of pride, uh, which is the human default position. And then there's the way of faith. And God says that the righteous, the righteous will live by faith. Now I want to stop reading there. And I really want to speak to you this morning from this uh, subject, the forward look of faith. Uh, here in this second chapter of Habakkuk, really all the way through verse 20, uh, we find what I'm calling the forward look of faith as God is teaching the prophet Habakkuk the importance of faith and then he reveals to the prophet what he's going to do even to the Babylonians whom he's using as an instrument of chastening uh, in his hands. So Habakkuk says, I'm going to get alone with God. I'm going to assume a posture of faith. Uh, and that's what he does here as chapter 2 begins. He begins to back away from the problems that he's been worried about. And he determines to leave them in the hands of God. And he determines to trust God's word on the matter rather than his own reasoning. And by the way, that's what faith always does. Faith is simply responding to God's word. Faith is submitting to what God himself initiates. It's not a blind leap into the dark. It's not believing in spite of a lack of evidence. But rather, faith is confidence in God that shows up in this willingness to listen to God and his word and then obey what God has to say. One person has said that faith is obeying God no matter the consequences. It's acting upon God's truth as he's revealed his truth in his word. Now, let me just mention this. Um, on Wednesday night of this past week, I began a study of the life of Abraham. And Abraham really is an example of what it means to walk by faith. But Wednesday night, I made this point as I got started. Faith is no better than its object. There's a lot of talk about faith these days. We're living in difficult times, and people often are saying something like this. Well, you've just got to have faith, and that's all that matters. And while I understand what a person is saying when they say that, let me just remind you that our faith is not in faith. Our faith is in a sovereign God. Our faith is in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And a person's faith is no better than the object of his or her faith. 
And so faith is this conviction that something is actually true in spite of the evidence that sometimes screams to the contrary. It's the assurance that something is true even when it can't be physically perceived. And so Habakkuk is learning this, and Habakkuk becomes an example of this in this second chapter. He doesn't know the details of the future, but he's going to trust God and what God is going to reveal. He places his faith in God's word and in God's character, and he's going to trust the Lord to do what's right while keeping his promises, working out his purposes. And so what we find here in this second chapter is what I'm referring to as the forward look of faith. Now, I want you to notice that it involves a few things. Uh, To begin with, notice with me that it involves the priority of God's word. Uh, The priority of God's word. And that's largely what we find here in really the first four um, verses. Habakkuk is waiting for a word from God. And when that word comes, listen to what God has to say to him. God says, write the vision. I'm going to reveal to you what I'm about to do, and I want you to write it down so that it can be read by all. And so this vision that's being referred to here in the second verse, it's that of the coming Babylonian invasion and how ultimately it's going to serve the purpose of God to correct his wayward people. And that word vision there is a very important word. It translates a Hebrew noun uh, that refers to a revelation by way of a vision. The emphasis is on divine communication. Uh, It's not so much the vision itself as it is the message that God is conveying to the prophet by way of this vision. And so it means the answer that Habakkuk is given. It comes not as the result of his own insight It's not the result of his own intellect. The answer that God gives Habakkuk comes by way of revelation. God is giving to the prophet his word on the matter, and the prophet was to write it down. He was to make it plain so that it could be understood and then circulated among God's people. So this vision uh, involved God speaking. It involves the prophet writing down what was spoken, And then it involves other people coming along and reading it. So God is speaking then to Habakkuk first. He's revealing to the prophet his word for his people. In fact, uh, that's how you and I have a copy of God's word uh, all of these years removed from the fact. Uh, It means that God's word is breathed out by God. That's what that word inspiration means. Uh, The Apostle Paul told Timothy that uh, Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed the Scriptures. Uh, Peter says that no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God. And that just simply means that by means of his Spirit, God revealed to his prophets his word in the Old Testament. He does the same thing uh, through the apostles in the New Testament. And so God is speaking truth to Habakkuk, and then he tells Habakkuk to write down what was spoken, make it plain. Uh, And the idea is God wants everybody to understand what he's about to do. And so this writing would be permanent so that each passing generation could read what had been revealed to the prophet. It was to be made plain on tablets, written in a way that anyone could read it. 
And so basically God is saying, Habakkuk, I'm going to give you my word. I want you to write it down and I want you to write it so plainly that anyone who reads it will immediately understand it and spread it all throughout the land. And so this shows me that the forward look of faith involves trusting God's word over our own faulty reasoning. Habakkuk was having a hard time understanding how God could use a wicked nation like the Babylonians to punish his own people. But Habakkuk's not left to his own reasoning here. Uh, He doesn't place his confidence in his own ideas or opinion or his own reasoning here. God is giving him his word on the matter, and Habakkuk is to stake his confidence in God's word. That's why the scripture says we're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. You know, it's easy for us to want to put all of our confidence in how we feel about a matter. In fact, this is the result of postmodernism in so many ways in today's society. Uh, we're, We're sort of programmed to want to think by way of feeling and to walk by sight. And yet, the way of faith is opposite of this. Uh... The Christian life means that I walk by faith and not by sight. I walk by faith in what God himself has revealed and what God has said in his word, not by sight, not by how I feel over a given matter, not on the basis of what society around me says about a given matter, but what God himself has spoken. And so that's what Habakkuk is doing here. And so someone says, well, why is it that it's so easy for us to want to walk by sight rather than faith? Well, the reason's our pride, folks. We rely on our own reasoning rather than faith in the revelation that comes from God because of human pride. And that's the default position of fallen humanity. And so God has revealed himself in many ways, and yet we've got to have him open our eyes that we might be able to see his truth. And so Habakkuk then is in this place of trust. God opens up his eyes and gives him a revelation of what he's about to do. And Habakkuk needed the forward look of faith. Reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 46 verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's hard for us to get still. We're often restless. Uh, We're often responding to the circumstances that we're in, and uh, we're often trying to find some kind of solid ground, and God comes along and says, listen, just be still and know that I'm God. I'm going to be exalted in the earth. It was a lesson that the prophet Elijah had to learn. After the showdown with the prophets of uh, Baal there on Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah was sure that revival was about to come to Israel. And so he's on the mountaintop of victory in 1 Kings chapter 18. Jezebel puts out a hit on his head. And in the very next chapter, we find Elijah in the valley of despair, wondering what God is up to. And God's going to take the prophet Elijah all the way to a cave on Mount Horeb. And God's going to reveal himself to Elijah and speak to Elijah in the form of a still small voice. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, Elijah, the world is not over. Uh, I'm on my throne, and I've got work for you to do. Now, that's a word for us even now, isn't it? Be still. Know that I'm God. 
Your circumstances may not be what you want them to be right now uh, as you're not able to leave your house or go to a restaurant or go to school or do whatever. But listen, be still and know that I am God. Put all of your confidence in me and quit trying to respond to the emotion of your circumstances because that will do nothing but lead you to the perpetual roller coaster ride of emotionalism in life. You've got to have something that you can stake your life upon. And God says, be still and know that I'm God. The forward look of faith places all of its confidence in God as he's revealed himself in his word. And I trust him to do what's right even when I don't understand it. That's what Habakkuk is having to learn uh, here in this chapter. So um, that's the priority of God's word. There's a second thing that I want you to see, and it's simply this. The forward look of faith involves the pronouncement of God's judgment. Now, I'm not going to get into all of this, but if you really read the rest of chapter 2, most of this second chapter is the pronouncement of God's judgment against the wicked Babylonians. So put yourself in Habakkuk's sandals for just a minute. Uh, He's having a hard time reconciling how God is going to use uh, wicked Babylon as an instrument of judgment and chastening against his own people, um, Judah. Uh, Judah had been sinful. Judah had been disobedient. Judah had even given themselves over to idolatrous worship. But Habakkuk's looking at the Babylonians and he's saying, God, these guys have been a whole lot worse than we've been. How is it that you really are are going to be justified in using an even more wicked nation to judge the sin of your own people. It was something that Habakkuk couldn't quite understand with his own intellect and reasoning. Remember back up in chapter 1, he says to God, uh, Lord, you're of purer eyes than to see evil. You can't look upon wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man who's more righteous than he? So he's saying, God, you, you, you are using these Babylonians, but what are you going to do about their sin? What are you going to do about them? <laughs> and so in chapter 2, God is giving the prophet reassurance. He's saying, listen, you just trust me. Uh, you remember the righteous lives by his faith. You trust me, trust my character, but let me give you my word on the matter. Uh, the Babylonians are going to experience judgment too. Uh, the Babylonians may be sweeping across the world right now and swallowing up peoples and carrying away peoples to captivity, but know this, I'm going to judge them for their sin too. I am no respecter of persons. And so you get to verse 4, and God is distinguishing then between two types of people. He's distinguishing between the proud man who's puffed up in his pride, the one who's not upright in his soul. That's a reference to Babylon. That's a reference to the pride of man. It's seen in contrast to the way of faith. The just shall live by his faith. So the Babylonians had been proud. They had been drunk on their own power. But in verse 5, God begins to reveal to Habakkuk how he's going to judge the pride of Babylon. And he says it's not going to happen overnight, but it's going to happen nonetheless. God would be their judge. God would pour out wrath upon their sin. One of the greatest books I think that I've ever read uh, in my my Christian life has been the book that J.I. Packer wrote, Knowing God. 
And J.I. Packer said something about the judgment of God and the wrath of God. Uh, Listen to this. He said, there are few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as judge. That word judge is a word that's often applied to God all throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, I know it may not be pleasant for us to think about. Uh, We think of God as our Father, and that's true if you're a believer, if you're in Jesus Christ. Uh, If you're a believer, God is your Father. Uh, We like to think about the love of God and how, how true that is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But folks, let me tell you something. God is just as much a judge as he is Father. God is just as much holy as he is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace. And you can't exclude one truth just because you might like another truth a little bit better. God is judge. And that's the truth that's being conveyed here in Habakkuk chapter 2. When Abraham interceded for Sodom, a city marked for destruction, the Bible says that he cried out to God in Genesis chapter 18. And here's what he said. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God is the judge of all the earth. There's no one beyond the scope of his judgment. There's no one who will escape standing before him on that final day. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 75, when the earth totters and all of its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. In the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, fully mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The writer of Hebrews says that God is the judge of all. Uh, He's a consuming fire. Uh, He hates with holy and perfect hatred all that's opposed to his moral character. Uh, By means of his character, by means of who he is, God hates sin, and he must punish sin as an extension of his justice. Now, let me tell you something. As a believer, that's something that you can look forward to in faith, the fact that God is Lord, that God is judge, that God will ultimately judge the pride of man. And what that does is it keeps you from thinking that you've got to take matters into your own hands Uh, to deal out retribution on someone who has wounded you deeply. As a believer, as someone who understands that God is judge, that God is Lord, uh, you can leave judgment in his hands. You you go all through Scripture and you see this truth illustrated. God judged Adam and Eve and banished them from the Garden of Eden as he pronounced his curse on a fallen world. God judged the wicked of Noah's day and sent a flood to wipe out that generation. He judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the form of 10 plagues before he brought his people out of bondage. He judged the Israelites for their unfaithfulness to him even after they had entered the promised land. God judged the northern kingdom and he used Sennacherib and the Assyrians to carry away the 10 northern tribes into exile. He judges the southern kingdom by raising up Babylon, just as he tells Habakkuk that he's going to do. And listen to this. God says the time would come when he too would judge the pride of Babylon because God is no respecter of persons. And so really verses 6 through 20 here in Habakkuk chapter 2, it makes up what a lot of Bible scholars refer to as a taunt song. 
And a taunt song often began with just this simple little interjection, the word woe or alas. In fact, we see something similar in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, In that chapter, Jesus uh, denounces the pride and the hypocrisy of the scribes and the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and he pronounces several woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. And so that word woe then, it's a warning of coming judgment. We see this here in Habakkuk chapter two. In this vision that the Lord gives the prophet, God pronounces woe upon five specific sins that characterized the Babylonian empire. And so what exactly would God judge Babylon for? Well, you can look through chapter two and you'll see that word woe there mentioned five times and it sort of represents five separate headings. And the first woe that is pronounced against Babylon, um, God is going to judge them for their, their stolen increase. Verse six, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. He loads himself down with pledges. And God says, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? You'll be spoiled for them. Because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples will plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So this is just God's way of saying, listen, what goes around comes around. Uh, What Babylon is doing to the surrounding nations and taking for themselves what does not belong to them, God says, I'm going to visit their own sin on their own heads. They had taken for themselves what was not theirs to take. By extortion, they had stockpiled for themselves wealth and material gain. And the time would come when God would plunder them. That's what he's saying here. So woe uh, woe to their stolen increase. And then God says, I'm going to judge them for their injustice. That's the second woe. You see this in verses 9, 10, and 11. Woe unto him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. It's this idea, it's this false sense of security. Babylon prided itself on its military might and its power. It swept across the earth. Their own, they worshiped the works of their own hands. They lived with this false sense of security. They thought that they were safe in their nest and that no harm could come their way. And God says, let me tell you, you're not beyond my reach. In fact, that phrase, nest on high there, it really reminds me of something that I once read about Hitler's Third Reich. Uh, High up in the mountains of southern Germany, Hitler had what he and his Nazi cronies referred to as the eagle's nest. It was a place where Hitler and some of his uh, Nazi leaders would go and they would have tea and they would plan their atrocities and hold meetings with dignitaries. And it was just a symbol of their pride, their eagle's nest. But God says, woe to the one who in pride builds for himself this false sense of security, thinking that he's beyond the reach of harm. The third woe involves Babylon's iniquity. God's going to judge them for their ambitious iniquity. And you see this in verses 12, 13, and 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples merely labor for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing? 
I mean, do you see that there? No matter what they had acquired for themselves, no matter what they had heaped up for themselves by way of stolen wealth, by way of wicked ambition, God says they merely labored for the fire. The nations of men weary themselves for nothing. And God says that at the end of the day, when the wind of his judgment has blown, all of their great endeavors will have amounted to nothing at all. And it will be a waste of a life. The fourth woe is against their immorality. God's going to judge Babylon for their their immorality, their perversion. You see this in verses 15, 16, and 17. Woe unto him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And you'll have your fill of shame instead of glory. So the idea is God's going to judge them for their immorality, for their violence. And yet when you read these verses here in chapter 2, I want you to notice the progression of moral decline. It's almost as if things begin with greed and evil ambition and then they begin to get worse and worse and worse until they they have a head-on collision with the judgment of God. What begins with covetousness leads to evil gain and then that's followed up by iniquity. And then that's followed up by immorality and and perversion. It's this idea of, it's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 of how sin becomes exceedingly sinful. That's true often in an individual's life. That's true in the lives of human society. It sounds a lot like Romans 1 as Paul describes God's judgment on unrighteousness, which keep in mind the whole context of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 17, the apostle Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. And then, just as here in Habakkuk chapter 2, God begins to pronounce judgment on the pride of Babylon, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 uh, sort of begins this explanation of the wrath of God on proud, unbelieving human society. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, who hold down the truth, who try to ignore and despise the truth, and they do so in unrighteousness. And then Paul just goes on this descriptive explanation of the wrath of God as it's been revealed from heaven. Someone says, well, what does wrath mean? Uh, What do you mean when you refer to God's wrath or his judgment? Listen to this. God's wrath means that there is never a time when God is not reacting to sin. By means of his character, God, his holy character, God is, he, he sets himself against sin. In Romans 1, what does he do? Well, three times you find this phrase. And the phrase is this, God gave them up. God gave them over. It means that part of his judgment involves God unleashing proud unbelievers to pursue the sinful dictates of their heart and then reap the consequences of it. God being the perfect gentleman that he is will come along and say, okay, you want to live your life that way? You want to pursue this, uh, which is contrary to my design, which is contrary to my truth? I'm going to let you do it, but no, I'm going to let you reap the consequences of choosing to live that way. And the consequence is that human society begins to unravel 
until it tears itself apart. God removes his hand of restraint and gives society over to a reprobate, debased mind. The fifth woe that God pronounces against Babylon involves idolatry. God's going to judge them for their idolatrous system. Uh, Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Or a metal image, a teacher of lies. Its maker trusts in his own creation when he's made speechless idols. Now listen to this. God says, woe unto him who says to a wooden thing, awake. Or to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? He says, behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it. It can't save you. The works of your hands that you enshrine, that you worship, that you live for, God says it can't save you from judgment. You say, well, idolatry was true of them, but now we live in such a sophisticated time, all these years removed, and surely idolatry is no longer a problem. Let me tell you what idolatry is. Idolatry is just simply you... um, um, living your life apart from God and finding your, your security and your strength in a God substitute. That's what idolatry is. Uh, idolatry, it's not just one of many sins. In reality, it's the one sin from which all the other sins come. It's the enthronement of self. It's the worship of what I can do Uh, build with my hands what I think um, that's going to bring me satisfaction. Idolatry is uh, the worship of the creation over the creator. And so Habakkuk is puzzled. He's puzzled about the pride of these Babylonians and God says, listen, I'm going to deal with Babylon in my own time. Now you don't have to turn there, but Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 reveals that it would be more than 50 years after Habakkuk's vision here that King Belshazzar of Babylon was holding a drunken feast for a thousand of his Babylonian lords. And in the midst of that feast, the finger of God began to write something on the wall, the wall of his palace. And it spelled out a message of judgment. And here's what it said, Mini, Mini, Tikal, Ufarsin. And the king called for Daniel who then begins to explain it to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, verse 26. Daniel says this is the interpretation on the matter. That word mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and he's brought it to an end. Tikal, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. Upharsin, the word means your kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, did you know that it was that very night that Belshazzar of Babylon was killed and his kingdom went to Darius the Mede? And folks, I'm telling you all of that to just simply say this. The mills of God grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. And lest we think that this was true of them, you better take heed lest you fall. Better take heed lest you fall. Folks, let me just say this. I love my country with all of my heart. I want to be as patriotic as I can be. I pray for our country. I pray for our president. I pray for Congress. I pray for the leaders of our country. I believe that the United States of America is the greatest country on the face of the earth. But at the same time, I can't ignore the fact that America has been the biggest purveyor of pornography in the world. 
and we've outsourced pornography uh, all over the world. Do you not think that the chickens are going to come home to roost at some point? And I don't think for one second that it's ironic that in January of this year, uh, the governor and the mayor of New York lit up the top of the New World Trade Center in pink to commemorate the most expansive abortion right legislation that has ever been passed in our country's history. And two months after that, we find ourselves in perhaps the biggest national crisis of our lifetime. Are you saying, well, coronavirus is the judgment of God on America's sin? I'm not going to go as far as to say that. But let me just simply say this. God is always judging sin. And at some point, our chickens will come home to roost. And that's why we've got to cry out to God in repentance as a nation of people. Do we think that God has just changed his mind over what constitutes sin all of these years removed? No, God's not changed his mind. The more that things change, folks, the more that they stay the same. We live in a technologically advanced society. Human society is more technologically advanced than it's ever been. But folks, let me tell you, we're still morally in the gutter. And we need the grace of God. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need redemption and salvation that's found only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the forward look of faith involves the priority of God's word. It involves the pronouncement of God's judgment here in this second chapter. But let me just give you a final thing here. And I want you to notice how it involves the promise of God's kingdom and God's rule. Because in the midst of this passage where God is declaring his judgment on Babylon, there are three wonderful words of assurance that God gives the prophet and that God gives his people. And that first word of assurance is there in verse number four. Uh, it's, it's, it's the word of grace. Uh, Habakkuk is given the assurance of God's grace. Yeah, the proud, his soul is puffed up inside of him, but the righteous will live by his faith. That means that through faith in Christ, you can be declared righteous. You can be forgiven. You can find safety in the midst of storm as the judgment of God was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ in your place, you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can be saved from wrath. So Habakkuk is given the assurance of God's grace. And then you get down to verse number 14, and in the context of God saying, yes, the nations of the world weary themselves for nothing. Man builds his empire. It's founded and rooted in his pride. He wearies for nothing but flames and fire. But verse 14, God says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise of God's glory. Uh, that's the assurance that Habakkuk can have in the glory of God. The fact that God is sovereign over the nations of men. That as uh, hard as man kicks against God and his truth, God and his purposes will ultimately prevail. And then you get down to the very last verse in verse number 20, and there's a third word of assurance that the prophet is given. It's simply this, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all of the earth keep silence before him. And that's the assurance of God's government. God is going to rule. Uh, God is concerned about his kingdom. 
And the day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom and nothing can thwart this kingdom purpose of our God. Now folks, that's something that as believers we can look forward to in faith. The world may crumble away around us. Society may be paying a steep price for sin. All that we know and all that we love may vanish before our eyes, but God tells the prophet, the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous lives his or her life with the forward look of faith. Why? Because all of the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord is in his holy temple and let all earth keep silent before him. Reminds me of the second Psalm. In Psalm two, uh, God says this, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I will declare the the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. The kings of the earth may plot, they may scheme, uh, they may despise the truth, uh, they may be inflated with ego and pride and pursue things that are contrary to God's ways, but God says, listen, let me just remind you, I've got the last word. Now, folks, let me tell you, never in my life have I seen so many people living in the grip of fear as people are living in fear even now. For those who have nothing to look forward to in eternity, I understand it. I mean, I understand their fear. This life is all that they know. This life is all that they hold near and dear. The rewards of this life is all that they have. But it ought to be different for those of us who claim Jesus Christ is our king. And let me tell you something. This is not the end of the world for us. You don't have to cave in to the fear and the the fear-mongering that's out there. You know, right now, there's, there's, people are kind of in a couple of different extremes. <laughs> On one extreme, you've got fear mongers who say, listen, we ought to just go in our house, close the doors, close the blinds, and never go back out in public again. And then the other extreme, you've got some who are ready to protest in the streets. But somewhere along the way, God's people have got to live with the forward look of faith that says, you know something, we know the king. We know how all of this is going to come out in the end. And our God wins. The Lord Jesus Christ, the day is coming when all of the kingdoms of this world belong to our Lord and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And I long forward. I long for that day. I look forward to that day. So until then, waters may rise, societies may crumble, evil may grow worse. But the forward look of faith understands that Jesus Christ and the purposes of God will ultimately prevail. It recognizes that God's judgment, it's swift when it comes, but his grace is available now to all who would turn to Jesus Christ in faith and in repentance. God's justice demands payment for sin, but in his mercy, he provided a substitute to take that punishment for us. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Romans chapter 5 says that God demonstrates his love toward us in this way, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, listen to this, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I've been saved from wrath. 
I've been saved from judgment because Jesus bore the wrath of God in my place on the cross. And my friend, let me just say this. If, if you are not sure that you're saved this morning, it's not by accident that you're watching this message. And I want to encourage you right there where you are, in an attitude of repentance and faith, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, that he is Lord and that he is Savior, and submit your life to him as Lord and King. Lord, in Jesus' name, I want to thank you for your word this morning. God, thank you for the forward look of faith that you call us to live with as believers. We live in a world, there's all kinds of things that happen. The world changes around us. The world has been a dangerous place since Genesis chapter 3. A world of sickness, a world of pandemic, a world of violence. And all of that is the result of man's sin. And God, being the judge that you are, you must judge sin. But Lord, you're a God of mercy and grace. And the Bible is the story of what you've done in real time by sending your own son into the world to absorb the wrath of God in the sinner's place. And now every person who turns away from their sin, it doesn't matter what they've done in life, how they've lived their life up until this point, if they look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, they can be forgiven. They can be saved. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in that way. Bring glory to your name, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.